Hey everyone, it's Grace. I wanted to offer a quick apology on behalf of Marie and I for not having been up to date on our recording and our posting. Um, we both individually have had quite a month or so of stress and difficult situations, and we haven't been able to devote as much time to the podcast as we would have liked. Um, we'll explain more next Friday when we will resume Man Alive with Chapter 3. Um, so never fear, we will be continuing. Um, this isn't a, a quitting message, but this is a just stay tuned message. So um, this week, I thought I'd share a talk that I gave a few years ago at my local Theology on Tap. Um, the topic was literature as a practical pathway to prayer. Um, and so I apologize in advance for the sound quality. We were at an outdoor brewery. We were recording on an iPhone. Um, but I thought that the information would still be worth sharing with you um, because it's all about literature. And I think that everybody who listens to this podcast obviously has some sort of love of literature, particularly literature, which can help us to grow closer to God. So I hope you enjoy. Um, and we will see you next week for chapter three of Man Alive on Pints with Chesterton. Cheers. that point 
um, where I've discovered literature, and it's become something that has been a pathway to prayer for me, um, something that's kind of taken my prayer to a different level, um, kind of brought it out of a place, um, I don't know, I guess I've started to pray differently based on different experiences that have happened to me in my life. So. Um, I want to talk about that. So basically, I'm an amateur, but I'm really passionate about this. Um, and so I put the definition, or at least what I think is the best definition of evangelization, at the top. And that is one beggar telling another beggar where she found the food. One beggar telling another beggar where she found the food. I think that is an extremely um, accurate description of evangelization. When you find something that feeds you, when you find the thing that brings you to life, um, you want to share it with other people. And so that's kind of where I am. Um, yeah, so I hope that you can relate. Okay, so I want to start out because this is theology on tap. I want to talk about the theology of the story. Theology of the story. Um, just literature in general. Like, what what does it teach us um, as human beings? Like, why do we need literature? Why is the story something that can help us in our lives and bring us closer to God? So let's start with God. Um, God reveals himself to man. But how does he reveal himself to us? How do we know about him? The Bible, right? Okay, yeah, stories. Okay, so um, God could have, right, dropped a catechism out of the sky, right, and said, here, here's all the formulas, here's all the exact theological definitions of who I am and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but instead, he decided to reveal himself via a story. And not just one story, but a bunch of stories within a story. Um, that's what we call the Bible. The word literally means the library or the books. Um, and so there's tons of different genres of literature within the Bible. Um, there's tons of different authors of the Bible. Um, but yet God authors it through all of those different authors. And I think that that is really beautiful. Um, so... He reveals himself through something that's less, maybe precise, I don't know if that's the right word, um, but yet at the same time, it's something that is deep, it's inexhaustible, um, that we can study it and read it and reread it, and it means almost different things for us at different times in our lives, um, and we can relate to it, and we can relate to the people that have experienced God throughout the history, um, throughout salvation history. Okay, so that's why um, I think that the Bible is the number one story that we all need to read. Um, before we even talk about other literature, which I'm definitely going to talk about, um, I think we need to talk about the Bible because that is the lens through which we're going to understand the stories of other people that we read in other books, um, and then especially our own story, the story of our own lives. Um, our lives are a story within a story. Um, recently, I've been listening a lot to Bishop Barron. Um, people that know me know that I'm a huge fan girl. I'm going to talk about that later. Um, but he's been quoting um, uh, Von Balthasar, who talks about the ego drama versus the theodrama. Um, and he says that all of us, um, we kind of have this temptation to live out what he calls the ego drama that my life is just about me, like I'm the author of my life, like I'm the author of the story of my life, um, and I'm the star, I'm the main person, it's all about me. Um, but God invites us into what he calls the theodrama, which is 
God is the director. God is the star. God has this pathway that he wants to lead us on, and he wants us to have a part in that story. Um, But our stories are not, I guess, like the nucleus, like God's story is, and like we're the stories that kind of go with that, if that makes sense. Um, So he's inviting inviting us into this adventure, and a lot of times people will think, like, well, if I'm not in charge of my own life, um, if I'm not the director of my own life, then, like, wouldn't my life just be boring? Like, wouldn't it just be, like, I just follow whatever God tells me, and it's boring? But actually, it's the opposite, because God can imagine things for our lives that we could have never imagined, right? He can He can think of things uh, that he wants us to do, or, or missions that he has to send us on, or people that he wants us to meet. Um, and if we're the ones who are directing our own story, um, then we can miss out on all of that awesome stuff that God has for us in our lives. Um, Okay, so to, to ask like him to be the author of our own story um, can actually lead us on the greatest adventure. All right, um, Jesus, right? Jesus is the word made flesh, the word made flesh, right? He's the story made flesh. So he's the one who um, reveals God to us, and he reveals God to us through the story of his life on earth. Um, but even in his teaching, my... Did Mike order tacos? Okay. Um, even in his uh, in his teaching, um, how does he teach? How does Jesus teach about that? Parables, right? Stories. So he decides to to tell um, stories. So he's teaching us about God. He's teaching us about life. He's teaching us about love. He's teaching us about what it means to be um, fully human. But he's teaching it to us via these stories. Um, And some of them, you know, he tells are real. Some of them he tells are fictional. But they get the point across in a way that's really piercing sometimes. Um, And so I was talking to my friend Christine the other day. We were talking about this talk, and I was just kind of brainstorming with her. And she said, why do we we react so much better to stories? Like, why, why do we listen? Why do we understand doctrine better when it's told to us in the form of a story. Um, And the first thought that occurred to me was, it's incarnational. Um, Stories put flesh to truth, right? So like human beings um, acting out reality, like we see that, we see flesh and blood, we see um, the way that it's played out in our everyday life. That's when it really starts to take root in our soul, like this is real, this is true. And I can relate to that experience um, or at least I can imagine relating to that experience. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons. Um, we need the formulas, right? Like, we need the catechism. We need um, the truth kind of laid out in black and white terms. But at the same time, um, the stories give flesh to the formulas. I think I wrote that on your handout. Um, the stories give flesh to the formulas. They make them come alive. Um And that just helps us to kind of internalize them more. Um, I have this quote from Evangelion and Siandi. It's a a letter, I think it was written by Paul VI. Is that right? Yeah, Paul VI. Um, I went to Franciscan University in Steubenville, and they made all of the catechetics majors memorize this line. Um, So it's, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than he does to teachers. And if he listens to teachers, it is because they are first witnesses. Um, I wanted to kind of apply that to 
us learning, like students, and stories, because I think it works the same. Students listen more willingly to stories than they do to doctrine. And if they listen to doctrine, it is because it is first incarnated or made flesh in a story, um, whether that's our own story or the story of another. Um, so I think, I know that that's true when I teach my students. I teach 10th and 11th grade, um, and I talk about doctrine all the time, or history, and they're just like, like, eyes glaze over, like, I don't care. And it's like so exciting to me, and I'm like, guys, this is so cool, these formulas, and they're like, yeah, whatever. But then I'm like, okay, so the other day I was talking to my friend, and like, he had this crazy experience, right? Like, he went to this restaurant, and this thing happened, and they're all just like, what? Tell me more, tell me more. They're like, automatically, they, they turn on, right? They know like this is something that is is real and relatable, and so like they want to hear the story. Um, so I think that that uh, is true for all of us. Okay, um, let's see. What do the saints have to say? Let's see the look at what the saints have to say. I think um, our older brothers and sisters in Christ. So Saint Jose Maria Escriva, he said, um, "Do not de- neglect your spiritual reading." Reading has made many saints. Reading has made many saints. Um, St. Jerome said, when we pray, we speak to God. But when we read, God speaks to us. When we pray, we speak to God. But when we read, God speaks to us. And St. Jerome would know because he's the one who translated the entire Bible into Latin. So he spent like 40 years of his life doing that. So he knows. Um, St. Isidore Reading the Bible provides us with a twofold advantage. This is really important. Instructs our minds and introduces us to the love of God by taking our mind off of vanities. By taking our mind off of vanities. I'm going to come back to that one later. Um, St. Athanasius, you will not see anyone who is truly striving after his spiritual advancement who is not given to spiritual reading. St. John of the Cross, seek in reading and you shall find in meditation. Knock in prayer and it shall be open to you in contemplation. Uh, this is from St. Augustine. The world is a book and those who do not travel read only a page. Um, I like that one because I like to travel. But I wanted to think of this too in terms of traveling outside of our own experiences by reading the stories of another. So you could travel without actually ever physically leaving your house, right? Like you could read these books and you could be transported into somebody else's reality, someone else's worldview, and be able to see, um, have new insights, and have almost like new experiences through them. So I think traveling for sure, physically traveling, but also traveling intellectually um, to other people's thoughts and worldviews. Okay, Um, St. Vincent de Paul, read some chapter of a devout book. It is very easy and most necessary, for just as you speak to God when at prayer, God speaks to you when you read. And then the last one is just um, a quote about prayer from St. Therese of the Sioux, the little flower. She said, Prayer is an aspiration of the heart. It is a simple glance directed to heaven. It is a cry of gratitude and love in the midst of trial as well as joy. Finally, it is something great, supernatural, which expands my soul and unites me to Jesus. I think of that definition of prayer, aside from being beautiful, um, is really relatable to reading, reading literature, because a lot of times when we think of prayer, I think we think of talking to God, Um, but St. Therese says that prayer can be just a simple raising of the mind and the heart to God. It can be a simple glance towards heaven. It can be 
kind of like the practice of the presence of God and kind of recognizing that God is real and God is present to me and to my life uh, and to other people in their lives. And I think that when we read, um, a lot of times we can be brought to that awareness. Um, it can kind of lead our mind to that. Okay. Um, this is the third section, and this is what kind of the heart of this talk is about, is how does literature um, lead us to prayer? How can literature lead us to prayer? Um, and I think I want to be really practical about it because I think that prayer sometimes is hard, or at least making ourselves pray is hard. Um, so the first thing that I thought of um, is prayer is hard because of distractions. Raise your hand if you agree. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you go to the Adoration Chapel, you're like, Jesus, I'm going to give you this time in adoration. And then you're like, Jesus, I love you, and oh, I need chicken at the store. Um, man, it's going to take me so long to cook tonight, and I've really got a lot of stuff to do for work tomorrow. And then all of a sudden, you're like on this train, and you're like not even, and you're like, wait a minute, no, Jesus, okay, I'm here, and you have to like recenter yourself. Okay, so distractions is really hard. Um, when I was at Franciscan, we were learning how to teach. And they taught us the ecclesial method. And the first step, they said, is called the preparation step. It's the prep step. They said, you must transport your students out of the spiritual space that they walked into your classroom in and into another spiritual space. And if you do not do that, you will not teach them anything. Because if they're still thinking about the gossip that they heard in the hallway, if they're still thinking about their homecoming date, if they're still thinking about whatever else that they were thinking about when they walked in, they're not going to be able to hear whatever you have to tell them. So you have to find something, some sort of distraction almost, to distract them from their distractions. Does that make sense? So when you go to prayer, distract yourself from your distractions. And I think one of the ways that you can do that is by entering into a story that's not your own. Does that make sense? Um, If I walk in the classroom and I start telling my students a story, just like right off the bat, they're, they're, they're in it. They like they want to hear it, right? So a lot of times what I do is, you know, I'll be at school all day teaching, and I'll be frustrated about whatever. And then I get in my car, and I hit play on my audiobook, or actually it automatically comes on in my car. And all of a sudden, I'm in Narnia. <laughs> like I'm not, you know, I'm not in my thoughts about school anymore. And that transports me to this place where I can be open and docile to whatever God has to tell me. Because before, I was just caught up in all these distractions. Okay. The other thing um, is poetry, because I think poetry is an extremely important type of literature, um, at least it is in my life. Um, and I think anything, I kind of think of poetry in a broad sense, um, anything with a rhythm, anything with a meter or, or verse. Um, so I think about music. Music can be a huge like transportation from one spiritual space to another. Um, it can just change my mood, change the way that I'm thinking. Um, and bring me towards this space where I can be open and receptive to God. The Psalms, we'll talk about that later too. The Psalms, hugely important. Um, you can find Psalms for every attitude, every emotion that you're experiencing. Um, and even just like the rhythm of prayers like the Rosary or the Divine Mercy Chaplet, just to kind of get you into this zone almost of prayer. Um, and those things I think are literary because they're, they're poetry and they speak to the heart. Okay. Um, so first of all, prep step, distract yourself from your distractions. Um, I wrote this quote down in the margin that I got from a friend of mine. Um, he said, prayer is a late night conversation with your best friend 
after you've had Waffle House and you're ready to talk. I thought that was awesome. I thought that was the best description. To kind of take yourself, Waffle House had to happen to take you out of that space and put you into the space of being willing to talk and open up your heart to your friend, right? So it's the same thing, I think, with with prayer. And I think literature can be a huge um, way to do that, a huge vehicle to do that. Okay. Uh, Second distraction or second uh, difficulty in prayer. Prayer is hard because I have no time. Raise your hand if you relate. I have no time. I, I relate to that as a teacher, for sure. Um, or I'm too tired when I go to pray. I'm too tired. Um, I used to be really angry when people would say, just find the time or just make the time. That would make me so angry. I'm like, but I don't have any. I don't know where I'm going to get it. Um, but recently, and this is kind of my own personal experience in the last three years, is I've discovered the glory that is audible by Amazon. I don't know if anyone's an audiobook fan, but oh my goodness, like it's just rocked my world and changed my life because I realized that I spend an absurd amount of my life in the car. I mean, just like tons of time in the car, hours in the car. Um, And so I realized that car time, like if I was going to do this thing, if I was going to read, it was going to have to be, I was going to have to get creative, basically. Um, I was going to have to find this time. Where is the time that I have? So the time that I had was in the car. So I was like, okay, we're going to do this audiobook thing. Um, and it was great. It was like I started January 1st last year. I was like, I'm going to make my new New Year's resolution to read 12 books, just 12, one a month. Um, and that's my New Year's resolution. And I think I started January 1st, and by March 15th, I had already finished all three Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit just in my car. So, I mean... That's a lot. That's a lot of time, you know, and those are big books. So, um, yeah, car time. Um, the other thing, social media time. How much time do I spend on social media? This Lent, I gave up social media, and I read so many books because every time I wanted to get on Facebook or Instagram, it was like, oh, just kidding, Audible. You know, there's the app right next to it. I'm going to press that instead. And tons of books, right? So I think, really, if you used your car time and you used – the time you spend on social media, or at least the amount of time, like, cut at least in half that you spend on social media, you get a lot of reading done. <laughs> a lot. Um, so here's just some numbers for perspective. Um, 365 days out of the year could equal 365 book chapters. That's a lot of books. Um, if I just read one chapter at night before I go to bed, maybe that's when you're kind of in the zone, is right before you go to bed. Um, instead of looking at Facebook for 30 minutes or an hour, or two hours before you fall asleep, um, read a book chapter, right? Um, and then 365 days later, you've read 365 chapters of different books. Um, one hour commute, if you have a commute in the car, um, one hour commute per day could equal roughly 260 hours of audiobooks. That's like a five-day-a-week work schedule, um, 260 hours of audiobooks. Um, I realized that I spend roughly an hour and a half in the car every weekday, um, like from home to school, to the gym, to home. Um, and that is a minimum of 265.5 hours of my life. So I took the 177 school days times 1.5 hours. Um, and that's not including the whole summer, holidays, trips, road trips. I live in, my family lives in Alabama, so I drive back and forth. I mean, that is a ton of time in the car, and that's not including grocery store trips, gas station trips, like everything else, right? So, um, so that's a lot. Something to think about. Okay, number three. Prayer is hard 
because I don't seem to get anywhere when I pray. I didn't relate to that. I don't seem to get anywhere. Um, the first thing that I had to realize was that it was hard for me to get anywhere when I stay inside my own head. It was hard for me to get anywhere when I stayed inside my own issues and my own problems and I tried to find solutions within myself because sometimes the solutions are not within myself. Sometimes the solutions are in God, right? Well, they're always in God. Um, sometimes the ideas um, aren't going to occur to me through just this mental like thought process, this cycle that just keeps going over and over and over again in my head. But maybe God has something to reveal to me through someone else or through the story that someone else can tell me. So, um, so I think literature can be huge here because it'll get you out of your own head um, and into a different world. Um, God can speak to the mind, right, give you some sort of, like, revelation. But I think more often than that, he uses other people and he uses other stories in order to reach us. And so um, I think you can combat self-centered prayer, too. Jesus, I need this. Jesus, I need that. Jesus, give me this. Jesus, give me that, right? Um, I do that all the time, right? And you kind of have to stop yourself and be like, okay, like, what is prayer? Go back to St. Therese, right? It's, it's raising the heart and the mind to God. It's not just this litany of, like, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, right? And that's not really going to do anything to make me get to a better spiritual space. Um, but it may actually make me even more anxious, right? But instead, just to say, God, you know what I need. I need these things. You know what I need. Lay them down. And, like, now let's think about other things in prayer. Like, what do you want to teach me? How do you want to bring me to a resolution? And I think reading can be a huge way to find that. Okay. Um, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Anyone else love the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay. Um, I did not read it when I was a kid. I was not, I didn't know anything about it when I was a kid. I read it three years ago. Um, for the first time I actually listened to it on audio, or audible, I mean. And this is a quote that really stood out to me. There's a lot. But Aslan, you guys know Aslan the lion? Do y'all know the Chronicles of Narnia? Everybody? Yes? Okay. All right, so Aslan's the lion, who is basically the Christ figure. So he says this is the end of the book. The kids are, are, like, frustrated because they have to go back home. They've been in Narnia, this magical land, like, this whole time, and they have to go back home. And they're sad, and they're like, Aslan, like, will, will we see you? in our home, like, will, you, will we see you elsewhere, like, or are you just here in Narnia, and he was like, no, I'm there, but you're going to know me by a different name, there's, hinting towards, he's Christ, right, so, like, in their own life, in World War II, London, you know, or England, or wherever they are, um, they're going to see him, but by a different name, and he says, this was the very reason you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there, this was the reason that you were brought to Narnia. I think that is like like literature, right? Like the reason that you read is so that you can get to know God in this like roundabout way so that when you go back to your life and you go back to your grocery list and you go back to all the things that are rolling around in your head, you're able to see it with a different perspective and you're able to find Christ in the midst of that. Does that make sense? Okay. So bringing you out of, again, out of the spiritual space and putting you into another one. Here's another thing. Um, when we read stories and we get out of our own head and we get into someone else's story, um, stories showcase human dignity. Um, they show us kind of like the inner workings of someone's mind and someone's heart. Um, maybe someone who has a lot of problems. Maybe someone who has a lot of issues. Um, characters can be pretty colorful in books. And yet we can find things in them that we can relate to. 
Um, or we can just see them in a different way so that when we go back to our life and we meet the colorful characters that we live with and work with and see every day, we can maybe think, wait a minute, there's something below the surface. Like, it's not just what I see, but there's something else that um, I need to be able to recognize in them. So I think that reading can promote uh, empathy. Like, we can have empathy for these characters, and then that empathy can apply to the other people in our lives. Um, and then empathy leads to real-life communion, and that really is the whole point of everything, is communion. So human dignity, empathy, and then real-life communion. Um, reading turns us outside of ourselves and outside of our own story and helps us to relate to the stories of others. Okay. Um, number four, prayer is hard because I don't hear God when I pray. This is one that my students say a lot. I don't hear God, Miss Cross. Like, I don't want to pray. I don't want to listen. Like, I, I don't hear him when I try to listen, right? Uh, what do I tell them? <laughs> you get an F. No. What do I tell them when they say, Miss Cross, I don't hear God when I pray? Get quiet first. But when was the last time you read his word? <laughs> when was the last time you read his word? Um, he wrote a story to us. He wrote a book to us. He wrote words to us. Um, if you want to hear him speak, read his word, right? It's very simple. Um, and I think sometimes too simple, we miss it. Okay. Um, so obviously reading the Bible, I said that already. But also when we read other works of literature, um, thinking, where do I see God in this? Um, where do I see truth? Because God is truth. Where do I see beauty? Because God is beauty. Where do I see love? And goodness, because God is love and God is good, right? Um, God is goodness. So, um, so when we read other things, look for where God could be speaking. Where is God speaking in this story for me? All right. Um, prayer is hard because I don't get God. Or I don't really know Him yet. Um, this is another one that my students say. I, I don't get God. Like God doesn't make sense to me. Um, reading literature expands our imagination. So when we read books, um, we start to, again, we get out of ourselves. We get out of our own worldview. We get out of our world and we just kind of, like our, our minds expand. And so when that happens, um, basically the bigger our minds are, the more of God we can know, the more we can understand God. And the more of God we can know, the more of God we can love. Um, the more you know of a person, the more you can love them more things about them you know to love. Um, and so when we read, it expands our imagination. Um, and we need big imaginations to comprehend God. And we can't actually comprehend God all the way because he's infinite and we're finite. But the more of, basically the bigger our bucket, the more water we can fill it with, right? So the bigger your mind, um, the more you can know God. Okay. We also need to know um, how God works throughout history in order to get to know him and other people's lives. So again, read the Bible, um, Salvation History, the story, um, the lives of the saints, um, biographies, autobiographies of saints, um, to see this is how he works in other people's lives consistently. So maybe this is how he's going to work in my life, or maybe he's going to work in a way that um, kind of goes along with how he's acted in the past. Does that make sense? Um, to kind of see how God has worked with other people if we don't know him, we don't know how he would work. Okay. And then the last one, I think this one's really important and maybe relatable depending on what you've experienced in your life. Prayer is hard because I'm angry. 
prayers hard because I'm angry at life or I'm angry at God. Um, I tell my students this all the time. First of all, God can work with your anger. Um, what he can't work with is your cold shoulder. So if you give him the cold shoulder and say, I'm not going to even think about God or talk to God at all, then there's not a whole lot he can do except send us all kinds of outward things around us. But if we're going to ignore that, then it's not going to do anything. Um, but God can handle your anger. <laughs> so um, be angry. I wrote on your sheet, uh, let him have it. And that was kind of a double meaning. Like, number one, like, let him have it. Like, <laughs> when you're angry, let him have it because he can handle it. And number two, um, let him have it because he can do something with it. Does that make sense? Um, okay. So second of all, um, when you're angry, have you read the Psalms? <laughs> You hear the psalmist in so many different psalms. He's angry, right? And he's, like, talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, God, like, how long? How long will you leave me this way? Like, how long before you come and rescue me? Like, why are you letting this happen to me? They're just questioning, questioning. But the psalms are the human heart and the mind of God um, are expressed in the words of God. Like, the Bible is the word of God, um, but, but the psalms are expressing the human heart and all of the range of emotions and different things that we experience. Um, so maybe try to pray the Psalms. The other thing about the Psalms is that they're poetry. And I think poetry sometimes can get at the heart of us more, even than prose, even than stories that are written in prose. Because poetry, I don't know, there's something about it. It's like music, right? It just sticks in our heads. It sticks in our hearts. It's like kind of going on in the background all the time. Like it's just, it's powerful. Um, and so I think poetry is really big. I know it has been for me. Um, if not reading poetry, then maybe writing poetry. That's that's something that I've done in my life, and I think the best poetry I've ever written came from the darkest times of my life. Um, and I return to it as prayers, like now, even years later after I've written it. Like, oh yeah, like that really expressed my heart to God, and so I'm going to go back to that and, and read that as a prayer. Um, yeah, so poetry. Okay, um, number four. How do I know what to read or not to read? So I'm going to get kind of practical. Uh, Number one, said it a couple times, we'll say it again. Always accompany your reading of various forms of literature with the reading of the story, which is scripture. Um, I just can't stress that enough. Um, Never put down the Bible for too long. Um, Pick it up. Read it. Um, Read different passages of it. Read the Gospels, especially really get to know Jesus, really get to know his life, um, know how he works and how he thinks and what he says, and you start to anticipate that. And you start to see it then working in other books that you start reading. Okay, um, Reading scripture alongside any work of literature will help you understand both references that the author makes, especially if you're reading Christian or Catholic authors. Um, tons of references. I was talking to my roommate about this the other night. Um, we both read a book called Father Elijah. Has anyone ever read that? Ooh, it's so good. You guys can put that on your list. Father Elijah and Apocalypse is what it's called. And she and I both read it. I'm a theology major. She's a math major. Um, I've read the book of Revelation and taught the book of Revelation. She does not either. Um, And so when we read it, we had totally different experiences of the book. And I felt like I was able to glean so much more, like, from it because I had read that book. And and Father Elijah has to do with the Apocalypse. So that's... Um, why? So yeah, so the more you read scripture, the more you kind of get these references. And she got things out of the book, and it was helpful for her, but she could have gotten even more if she had been reading scripture alongside it. Okay. Um, 
Understanding the story is the only way to properly understand every other story contained within it, right? If it is the theodrama that we live in, truly, which it is, whether we recognize it or not, um, all stories are contained within the story of salvation. And so if we have that worldview and we have that understanding, then when we read other books um, that aren't scripture, we're going to be able to see themes or we're going to be able to understand why people are the way that they are and the actions that they, they make and the words that they say and all these things um, within the context of the story. And it's going to become powerful. All right. Um, the second thing is read what you need. Read what you need. Um, make a wish list. This is what I did when I decided that I wanted to read. I basically had gotten to the end of a year, another year of teaching, and realized I haven't read a single book an entire year. And I was like, that's I'm not okay with that. I want to be able to read more. So I made a wish list, right? I started asking around. I posted on Facebook, and I was like, hey, tell me your favorite books and why, you know? And I started making this list. Um, but then I would pick a book, and I would read it, and then I would reassess. I wouldn't just go down the list. I would say, like, okay, God, like, what do you want me to read next? Because he's going to be wanting to speak to you, right, through this literature. And so, like, what do you want me to read next? Like, point it out. Show me, right? And sometimes it happened more significantly than others. Like, for example, uh, recently I read Brideshead Revisited. I don't know if anyone's ever read that classic. Um... I had heard about it because two of my friends named their children after the main characters because they loved it so much. Um, and so they had told me about it. I was kind of like, that sounds like a weird, I don't know, like that sounds like a weird book. Like I, I'm not really sure about it, I didn't know anything about it. But it was kind of in the back of my mind. And then I was listening to Bishop Barron again, and he started talking about beauty, and he was talking about Brideshead Revisited. And then the very next day, I was hanging out with my friend who was a seminarian, and he was like, hey, have you ever read Brideshead Revisited? And I was like, okay, God, like I'm going to read that next. So then I did. So he'll do that. Like, he'll reveal things to you. So listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Like, what are the thoughts that are occurring to you in prayer? Like, what book is, keeps coming to your mind? Like, what are the suggestions of your holy friends and your mentors and people that you respect in your life? Like, what books have rocked their world? Like, maybe that will rock your world, too. Um, what is it that keeps just keeps coming up in conversation? Maybe read that. All right. Um, the next thing is research. Look up some books that are time-tried, tested, and proven. Um, there's tons of lists of must-read Catholic literature out there. Sometimes I'll just type in, like, 100 greatest works of Catholic literature, and a ton of stuff will, will come up, and people, um, the more you read, the more you see the ones that are consistently on every list. And that's I kind of started working from that when I was making my wish list. Um, I've provided a couple later on this handout, and then I also want to brainstorm with people a little bit later to be thinking about maybe some books that you've read that have rocked your world, spiritually especially. Okay. Um, D, is it good? Is it true? Is it beautiful? Um, I might ruffle a couple people's feathers here. Um, make sure that the book you're going to read is not going to lie to you. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Um, not every book you read needs to be, you know, just like totally pristine and nothing bad ever happens and everything's wonderful and blah, 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 blah. Um, but... It needs to tell you the truth, especially about sin. Um, so if there is sin in copious amounts in the book, okay, does it tell you the truth about it? Does it show you the natural consequences? Does it show you how this is actually going to affect people's lives? And then on the flip side, does it show you grace? 
does it show you how, how there can be redemption um, in this story? Um, so is it going to lie to you? Um, is it going to be just like cheap talk with shallow lessons? Or is it going to be something that's going to reach to the heart? Okay. Um, some examples I put on your handout. <laughs> Uh, I put some kind of extreme examples. So I put something when I think of like secular lies today, the first thing that I thought of was Fifty Shades of Grey. Sorry if you're a fan. I hope you're not. Um, that, uh, I mean, talk about lies, right? Like this is happiness, this is love, this is whatever. Like what? No. Okay. So the more you listen to stuff like that, you're going to start to, you're going to start to believe that maybe. Um, that's a lie. But on the flip side, um, we can talk about hagiography, which is the writing of state biographies. Sometimes, um, especially in the past, there have been a lot of people who write state biographies, and these biographies highlight everything wonderful and holy and beautiful and amazing about these holy brothers and sisters in Christ, but like never reveals their struggle, never says anything about their, you know, the fact that they're sinners, the fact that they had to go to confession just like us, the fact that they had to really struggle for holiness, the fact that they went through really difficult times in their lives and maybe even questioned God, right? Like a lot of times these um, these stories, and not all of them by any means, but some of them can be so kind of like put the scene up on a pedestal that all of a sudden we can't relate to them anymore and it kind of tells us a lie about what holiness looks like. Does that make sense? Okay. So I think there can be kind of two extremes. Definitely there's a lot of really good saint biographies and autobiographies out there that are very awesome and truthful and show both um, the struggle and the grace um, of a saint's life. Okay. Um, the other ones, I hope I don't make anybody mad. Uh, secular lies. I think about the show Friends. Friends is funny. Okay, like, I like to watch it sometimes. But think about that show. Like, literally, they're friends. They all sleep with each other. And they're totally happy and still friends. Like, that does not happen in real life. You know what I mean? But, like, then people are watching this. And they're, you know, maybe they don't think you're right off the bat. Maybe, maybe you're watching it and you just think, like, oh, this is just silly and funny and whatever. That's fine. But the more you watch stuff like that, and that becomes, like, the majority of the things that you're watching and listening to and reading and, and all of that kind of stuff, it's going to start to work on you, whether you realize it or not. I had a friend um, who's a youth minister one time. She told her kids, they would say, oh, you know, I don't listen to the lyrics. I just like the beat. Or, like, oh, I just think this show is funny. Like, I don't, I don't really believe that it's real. Um, and she just looked at them and she said, your subconscious can't take a joke. She's like, your subconscious can't take a joke. Like, you might think that it's not affecting you, but it's affecting you. And so I think, like, in small doses, things like friends, like, it's not going to, you know, wreck your spiritual life. But at the same time, like, the more of that that you're consuming, the more of that, it can, it can start to affect you. You can start to believe the lies that this is what real life is like. Um, and it's not. Okay. Um, the second thing that I put on there on the other end was, has anyone ever seen the movie Fireproof? It's like a Christian film. There's really good things about the movie. I kind of want to like down it all the way. But at the same time, it's the story of a couple where the man is addicted to pornography and it's really obviously affecting their relationship in a bad way. And there's this moment in the end where he like throws his computer on the ground and smashes it with a baseball bat and then like goes on a walk with his dad who tells him about Jesus and he accepts Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior and then everything's great and now he's cured of his pornography addiction. And I'm like, okay, like, yes, giving your heart to Jesus and giving your life to Jesus is the first step, but like, it's not going to fix all your problems. Like, 
right then, you know? And so I think that that can start to tell a lie to people, too, because they think, like, if I give my life to Jesus, then everything's going to be great automatically. And that's not true either, right? Yes, there is grace. Like, yes, there is healing. Yes, there is redemption. But, like, it's a lot more involved and a lot more difficult and a lot more messy than that. Like, life is messy, right? So for an example of some real-life things that I was thinking of was um, there's a book called The Power and the Glory. Has anyone ever read that? Yeah, I know you have. Um, there's a story, it's a story of a priest in Mexico during the persecution, the communist persecution in like the 20s, I think, or 20s and 30s in Mexico. They're basically lining up priests and saying, if you don't um, take a wife, we're going to shoot you. Um, and they did. Um, so there's this one priest who is on the run, basically. And he's a great sinner. Like, he has a child out of wedlock. He is, they call he doesn't even have a name in the book, they call him the Whiskey Priest. Because um, he's addicted to alcohol. He's an alcoholic. Like, he's got all these issues. Um, but it is beautiful. And you see, like, his struggle, and you see his, like, really wrestling with his situation. And he's like, why am I even running? Like, why am I even trying to hide from the government? Because, like, I'm not even a good priest, right? But he's like, you see his internal struggle, and you see him very, like, human, but yet at the same time, you see him seeking God, even though he's in the midst of this crazy struggle. And so I think that is awesome, because it kind of shows the reality of, of the struggle, but also the reality of grace. And if you read that book, you'll definitely see it. So um, that was one. And then a TV show I thought of was Downton Abbey. Anybody a fan? I don't know. I really like Downton Abbey. I think that I like it because there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in that show. There's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in that show. Um, things that are not um, admirable. <laughs> okay. But you see the consequences of people's actions in that show. They're really, really good about saying, like, this person did this thing that was kind of crazy and kind of scandalous. But they had to deal with the fallout, and they had to deal with how it affected their relationships, and they had to deal with how it made them different as a person. And I think that is really cool and really beautiful. But you also see the grace. You also see the redemption. You also see relationships being healed, but not easily, right? You see people really having to work at their relationships. I think it has a beautiful take on marriage um, and kind of trying to really struggle and really try to um, enter into this mystery. I think it, it does that beautifully. So those are some examples. Does that make sense? Okay, is it going to tell you the truth? All right, the last thing is know thyself. Socrates, right? Know thyself. Um, know your level of theological understanding. So if you're going to try to read literature, other than the Bible, right, read literature as a pathway to prayer, know yourself and know how much you know and know how much you don't know. Um, so if you're really trying to let this lead you to prayer, um, if you are kind of unsure about the faith, kind of unsure about church teaching, understanding it, knowing it, what is it, can I recognize it when I see it, can I label it when I see it, um, if you're not very good at that yet, if you're not really in that place yet, then it might be better to kind of stick to things that are more, um, you know, like written by Christian authors, written by Catholic authors, written uh, are kind of on these book lists of like the best books that you should read as a Catholic, blah, blah, blah. Um, because I think that those books um, will help you in your prayer, but I also think they will teach you the faith and teach you the worldview um, and kind of teach you like how God works. Now, if you know the faith really well um, and you can recite the catechism, not really, but if you know it really well, um, then 
explore, right? Like read a lot of different things because that can kind of help you. You have your grounding, you have your understanding of how we see God as Christians, but um, you can also explore different worldviews and like just different places and people's stories and be able to see the grace working in those stories and be able to see God speaking in those stories even in the most unexpected ways. Um, and I've definitely experienced that. Um, all right. Almost the last thing. I want to talk about three of my literary and spiritual heroes. And then I'm done. Do I have, are we good? We're good? We're good? Okay. Um, three literary and spiritual heroes. I did some doodling. Uh, the first one is my fave, Bishop Robert Barron. Anybody a fan? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Bishop Barron. If you don't know him, look him up. YouTube. YouTube watches watch his stuff watch his stuff on literature watch his stuff on movies uh, watch his stuff on music uh, he calls himself he's a self-proclaimed Bob Dylan evangelist <laughs> he loves Bob Dylan so much and he talks about it and, and why because um, he believes that he's he's deeply religious and a lot of the things that he has to say are, are really profound and so anyway he talks about that um, I love Bishop Barron because he often talks about beauty as the most effective arrowhead of the new evangelization um, so out of the three transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, all of them which are fully contained in God, he said, in our day and in our time, when people are very kind of standoffish about truth, really, and even standoffish about goodness, like you should live your life this way or live your life that way, um, he said beauty is something that we can all relate to. Um, he says beauty is something that can kind of be this doorway in. Um so he says books, talk about books, talk about music, talk about movies, talk about poetry, um, music, art. Um, what are those things that we can all relate to? We can have this similar experience. We can both watch this movie. We can both listen to this song. And then me as a Catholic, like I can see where is God in that song? Where is God in that movie? Where is God in that book? Um, and let's talk about it. You know. So he says that, that that's kind of a way in sometimes and not just for other people but for ourselves you know like even when you're listening to a talk and somebody says you should live your life this way and you're like oh I don't want to change my life right you're you're standoffish sometimes or I know I am um and so beauty sometimes can be evangelistic for me and you can see that in writing in beautiful writing and literature and poetry and things like that um I also love Bishop Barron because of his um quote-unquote, both-and mentality. He talks a lot about how Catholicism is about the both-and. Um, it's kind of this holistic approach um, to a lot of things. Being able to see kind of like right brain and left brain, you know, like the, the intellect and the formulas and all of that, the catechism, you know, and then uh, the right brain, the art, the poetry, the literature, the music, the expression, the beautiful cathedrals, like the expression of the faith in all these different ways. He's very, very both, and he himself is a person, um, but also just like in how he speaks about evangelization. Um, so anyway, a couple recommendations from him. Um, the Word on Fire Show podcast. During Lent, when I wasn't on social media, I was binge listening to the Word on Fire podcast. I think I listened to like over 100 episodes because <laughs> it's that good. Listen to it. Um, he also wrote a book called Seeds of the Word, which I actually haven't read yet, but I've heard a lot of good things about. 
um, where he talks about how to find God in things like literature and film and music and stuff like that. Um, his autobiographical book, To Light a Fire on the Earth, that just came out, um, he talks a lot about this kind of stuff in there, especially with beauty. And then, of course, his YouTube channel where he talks about literally everything. Um, yeah. Okay, second person, um, John Foreman. Anybody know who that is? I know you know who that is. Yeah. Um, he's the, the lead singer of the band Switchfoot. I don't know if you ever heard of Switchfoot. Um, kind of alternative rock. They've been around for a long time. Um, I love John Foreman. I love Switchfoot. They're not Catholic, but they are deeply Christian. Um, and John Foreman is very intelligent. Uh, he reads incessantly, like he reads a lot, and he reads everything. And um, I've seen him post quotes like on his Facebook page from like Pope Francis and from different Catholic saints and like all this kind of stuff. Um, he reads just like a myriad of different things, and he writes a lot too. Um, his music is poetry. I think that's why I like him so much. His music and poetry. It's based on books. It's based on his reading, especially the sacred books, especially the Bible. Um, he really internalizes it. Um, and I think he really expresses the fact that poetry is the honest prayer of a wounded heart. Poetry is the honest prayer of a wounded heart. And I think his music really shows that. Um, I mean, you know, Switchfoot, the stuff he does with the band is you know, it's alternative rock, so it's kind of grungy sometimes, and it's kind of funny, but like, but the lyrics are just piercing sometimes. You listen to them, and you're like, wow, that is, that's it. Like, that's truth. <laughs> like, that's beauty. That's goodness. You know, I can relate to that. And um, and it's just, it's really profound, um, some of it. Okay, I think he and his music, and this is both with the band Switchfoot and his solo stuff. He has solo stuff as well. Um, he gets this perfect both and, this perfect juxtaposition of the reality of fallen man, the fact that we are fallen and we are not perfect and that we are sinners, um, but juxtaposed with the reality of the resurrection and the reality of redemption. Um, I really like his songs, especially when I'm having a bad day because he'll just yell. <laughs> like, he's just, ah, like in certain songs, he'll just yell. And I like that, but at the same time, a lot of alternative rock, I found, is very um, dismal. <laughs> it can be very um, kind of just like downer, and like that's all you are, it just leads you there. But Foreman is so good at kind of being there in that spot of the mess, but then lifting you up out of it. And I think that's so important, and it's so um, based on the Psalms. That's what the Psalms do, right? The, the Psalmist is just angry. It just loves saying all these things. But then at the end, he's like, but still I will praise your name. But still, I will praise your name. But still, I will uh, give thanks because you will deliver me. You know, he like looks forward to the future, and I think Foreman does that a lot in his music. I highly recommend literally all of it, but especially um, the album "Nothing Is Sound." I think it came out in like 2005 or something. "Nothing Is Sound." The whole album is based on the Book of Ecclesiastes. If you read that that book, that's the um, the book that's like. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Like basically, nothing, nothing in the world is lasting. I mean, the name of the album, nothing is sound except for God. Nothing is sound except for God. And so that is, mm, it's there. Um, and then there's a documentary about the band, which I think is really cool, um, Fading West. Last one, um, John Paul II. I called him the playwriting revolutionary. Um, literature as hope in the darkest hours. Does anyone know about John Paul II and the Rhapsodic Theater? Have you learned about that? So 
he was in Poland, of course, during the Nazi occupation, and also then later uh, when he was a bishop and then an archbishop under the communist rule. Um, and especially during the Nazi occupation, um, they would he and his friends would sneak out at night, like literally just escaping death. Like I mean, they would they would escape, and you would think like if you're gonna risk your life to to like go out at night and meet, what are you gonna do? You're planning sabotage. You're, you know, plotting how are we going to overthrow this rule? You know, like you're gathering your army and your forces and all this kind of stuff. No, they were performing plays, which was illegal. But like, why was it illegal? <laughs> because the Nazis knew, and the communist leader, they knew that the Polish soul was religious, and they knew that their poetry and their and their plays and their literature. Everything was just drenched with this understanding of God. And that that literature and that poetry raised their hearts and their minds to God. It led them to prayer. And they were very anti that because they knew that it was against what they were doing. And so John Paul II was like, no, this is our resistance. Like, this is what we do. We preserve the literature. And what's funny is that's exactly what the Jews did when they were carried off to Babylon. Um, I don't know if you know the story in scripture, but they're carried off to Babylon and um, it's this city that's filled with all kinds of sin and all kinds of ridiculousness. And they hunker down with each other and they write the scriptures. They preserve their culture. They preserve their faith um, so that when they're finally released 70 years later, um, they have it and their children have it and they know it and they're able to go back. And that's exactly what happened with John Paul. He formed these underground communities where they're performing plays and reciting poetry and like doing all these literary things um, and then when the moment was right, when he was Pope and he went back to Poland, he gave this speech um, and it was very peaceful, but there was all these people gathered there and just spontaneously the crowd starts chanting, we want God, we want God. And it was like all he had to do was just come back to Poland and be like, hey guys, I'm Pope now. Come out now, like come out from hiding, like show what you've learned and show what you've preserved and like there they were. And not too long after that, the communist regime in Poland fell. And he's really credited with a lot of the reason why. Um, and so, anyways, I just think that's really awesome and just kind of shows that literature, um, it's an effective rebellion against the powers of darkness. <laughs> like, that's, that's a big deal. <laughs> it's a really big deal, especially in our lives. Okay, did anyone see the jeweler shop at Christ the King? They just performed it a couple days ago. Oh my gosh, I was blown away. I had never read the jewelry shop before, but I had my little book like a nerd that was following along as they were acting. And man, I can't wait to go back and actually just read it and like really read it with like a highlighter because man, that was incredible. It is a play written by the young Carol Latia, um, John Paul II. Meditations on the Sacrament of Matrimony. Um, beautiful, powerful. Um, I also, I listened on audiobook, it was an abridged version, um, but the biography of John Paul II by George Weigel called Witness to Hope. Man, talk about a book that led me to prayer. Like, I mean, dang. Um, that was, that was intense. Um, and then also I'm watching currently right now with my juniors, this movie Carol, A Man Who Became Pope. Um, I think it was made by a company in Europe, it's not an American film, but it's in English. Um, and you know, in the beginning, the acting is a little cheesy. It's not a Hollywood movie, but it gets better. It really does. And it's not like the super cheesy, cheesy movies where you're like, I can just not watch this anymore. Like, it's, it's good. Like, it's really, really good. And it's really powerful. Um, so I recommend that. 
uh, about his life, too. Okay, I feel like I've been talking forever, so I want to hear from you guys. I put on your sheets some book recommendations, things that I've read that I love, also some spiritual reflection questions for you to look at um, while you're reading as kind of a guide. Um, I want to hear if you have a book that has really rocked your world um, that doesn't have to be a Catholic book or a Christian book or anything, but if you have a book that's really rocked your world, I want you to tell us about it. Anybody? Can you come up here? Sorry, I would bring the mic to you, but it has a cord. Sorry. Thank you. Um, my sisters are really cool, and they read. And so they recommended the Brontes to me. And the most recent one that I read was Jane Eyre. If you read it in high school, I didn't. And... I really like Jane Eyre. I listen to it from the library. The library has free audiobooks that you can read. And I like Jane Eyre because Jane is a stalwart against temptation. And she is such an example. And I guess some people would consider her too good. But the beauty about the book is that you see the inner workings of her mind, and you see what's going on. And you don't have to like other characters. <laughs> you can just like Jane, like me. <coughs> Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte. Thank you. Who's next? I'm an adequately loud person that I think most people will be able to hear me. Sounds good. So, I have a lot of recommendations here. I did. Uh, I was an English major, so, but I'm not going to go out and talk that all about it. You want to come here? Uh, two books that I recommend most highly. The first one is the Iliad. It has been said to me numerous times that besides sacred scripture, but including everything written in the genre of divine literature that includes divine comedy, uh, Paradise Lost, all of that, the song, God loves the Iliad the most. <laughs> Therefore, you should read the Iliad. Okay? But besides that, uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend a book by Blair Bella, which Chesterton's uh, side piece. But honestly, it's the, the brain fine. Is, uh, Ooh, the those are fighting words. The path to Rome, which is uh, it's a pilgrimage. He walks to Rome, but it's not, in, it's not about what he saw. It's about what he thought on the way there. And there is nothing profoundly theological in it, except that you're seeing the thoughts of a man who was thoroughly Catholic. So it's, I think it's a, it's a good way to, to bore into the mind of a true Catholic. Awesome. Besides that, you know, if anybody has a link. What was the name of that one again? The Path to Rome. The Path to Rome by Hilaire Belloc. Very cool. You mentioned Chesterton. I'm a huge Chesterton fan. I'm so, I've just started to read him. But I read a book um, by him recently. It's a novel called Man Alive. Has anyone ever heard of that? Man Alive. Yeah, I read it. It, it just totally rocked my world. Um, made me think about my life in a whole different perspective um, in God. It's hilarious. I laughed out, out loud when I was reading it. Um, Chesterton's funny. Anyways, that's a recommendation. Who's next? I read a book called John Paul the Great and His Five Loves, and it's written by Jason Everett. I feel like it's a really accessible book for a lot of people who want to just know more about John Paul II. It just makes him very human. Um, I didn't really know that much about him before I read that book. I mean, I knew about him, but not like on a more personal level. And after I read that book, I just felt like we were like best friends, and I cried at the end of the book. And it was just, it's amazing just kind of talking about the important things spirituality and it really brought me to care so that's what I was thinking 
listened to the abridged version of Witness to Hope, I was definitely crying. I was like driving my car like, oh, I want to be like you. Um, yeah. Mm. Uh, the one that I said? The one that she, Jason Everett. Jason Everett. Um, the four laws. John Paul and his four laws. Five laws. Sorry, five laws. You got a lot of those. <laughs> Six loaves. We have seven. <laughs> seven okay. Yeah. Who's next? Any other recommendations? Books that rocked your world. Led you to prayer. So Chesterton. I like Chesterton. Um, the Dumb Ox is his biography of Thomas Aquinas. <clears throat> I read it on a silent retreat. And anytime you're on a silent retreat, everything is more intense. <laughs> So I'm like out, you know, Manresa in the field, crying. <laughs> but actually, what I want you to um, do is is listen to a guy named Josh Gerald's. Josh Gerald's musician, um, songwriter, music, you know, the poetry of of music, and um, if it's good, he's kind of like John Foreman, um, and just Josh Gerald's. Listen to Josh Johnson. He's a he's a rapper. Because he is Josh Garrels. A G A R R E L S, I think. This might be two L's. Just Spotify Josh Garrels. At the table, I cannot listen to this song without crying. I cry a lot apparently. Okay, but I need a beer. It's okay, I cry a lot too. I cry all the time. Hi, um, I read a lot. Uh, I think one year I read over 100 books. Wow. Not all of them are good. Um, so I read a lot of young adult fiction, and I have found that because it's a little bit simpler, a lot of times they can get deeper. Um, the, the Book Thief, I don't know if any of y'all have ever read that. I like cried the whole way through it. It really shows the struggle of doing the right thing. Like, um, I don't want to ruin it for you, but there's this one part in the book where one of the main characters makes this decision and you're like, like screaming, oh, screaming, like don't do that because there's this other character whose life is in danger. And it's very, very, it shows that difficulty in the real world. Um, and it's and it's made for, you know, middle school and high school kids, you know. Also, um, there's a, three or four books that Terry Pratchett wrote for young adults. Terry Pratchett's kind of a, he's an interesting guy, but his young adult books are a little bit more accessible, but he writes a lot about the importance of stories. And, you know, I read the books, and the more I read them, I was like, I really, I think, I don't know if you believe what you think you believe, because what comes through his writings is not what he has professed outwardly. Um, so it's the Tiffany Aching books. The first one is the Wee Free Men. Also hilarious. My son loves them. There's little blue men that run around and say cribbins. Um, so it's, you know, you can listen to it. I have a child, so I can listen to these things with him in the car. Um, and there was one other I was thinking of. Oh, uh, just as an example of young adult literature also, like Hunger Games. There's the, in the first book, when Katniss immediately steps up for her sister, like, that's what Jesus did for us. Like, that's a concrete example that is accessible to young people. This is what Jesus did. Jesus immediately stepped up and said, no, I'm going to take your place. So, young adult literature is awesome. So, no, I love that, too, because I teach teach kiddos 
Um, yeah, it's funny she said Terry Pratchett because I actually have one downloaded on my Audible right now that I haven't listened to yet. So maybe that was the Holy Spirit telling me that I should listen to it. Got one? So the, the first book I wanted to mention was Athanasius's biography, St. Athanasius's biography of St. Anthony of the Desert. Uh, I really I like it. I, I use I reference it in homilies quite a bit. Uh, the the second one I keep forgetting which what, what I was gonna say. But it's ah Mark Twain. Mark Twain, a profoundly anti Catholic uh, man. He wrote uh, Joan of Arc. Uh, the biography it's a it's a historical fiction, but it's very historical fiction. Uh, and I think he liked Mark Twain because he saw her as a profoundly kind of anti-hierarchical figure. You know, like he saw it as showing everything that's wrong with the church, but at the same time he kind of showed off everything that was, was good with, with the saints. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've heard of the um, St. Anthony of the Desert one. I've been wanting to read that too. Um, anyone else? Yeah. So I, I liked what you were saying before about um, you know there's the secular lies versus the you know the, the more getting a truth. And I think of a comparison that you could make between two books. There's the same basic plot element, which is adultery. One of them was um, Madame Bovary by Flaubert. The other one is uh, Anna Karenina. Both of them are about that. Neither of them really is. Uh, I think an explicitly religious book, but it's a, an important theme. But I think what's the difference is that in um, in uh, Madame Bovary, which I'm told is a technically perfect novel, I don't know what that means, but uh, that's why apparently people read it. it she she um, you know she does the sin, but the church is very ineffectual. It doesn't have any remedies. You know, she goes to church and it doesn't have this effect on her. You know, in fact, she even meets up with this person at the church once, and it's really, it's very bad. Versus, in Anna Karenina, there's the same downward arc of, of, of ruin, but there's someone else, the other character, um, Levin, who's in it. He starts off and he starts off saying, oh, I'm this, I'm this very smart person. I got everything figured out. I don't need organized religion. But then, over time, he becomes much more um, amenable to it. And at the end of the book, he has this conversion experience from his own marriage. So it's this it's this very interesting contrast. I think that's what you're saying about, um, uh, uh, you know, having. If, do, do you see the consequences of sin? So those are those points. Cool. Yeah. Um, I just had a thought. Just about that. Oh, that's what um, Brideshead revisited. Same thing. You've read that. Um, you see somebody who they're kind of like thought process is starting out as agnostic but then end up yeah. So alright. So that it? We're good? I wanted to say something. Oh you wanna say something? Okay, good. Good, good. One was uh Flannery O'Connor. Uh, so an awesome Catholic short story writer. So like I'm big on short stories because long ones tend to lose me pretty easily. So Flannery O'Connor she has this one story called Temple of the Holy Spirit and a lot of them um, are based in the South. Uh, so she was uh, this kind of very frail and health Catholic woman, uh, but just had this incredible mind, wrote some really awesome stories that tend to be a little darker, but uh, very funny writer too. So Flannery O'Connor, 
Temple of the Holy Spirit, super good. And then two other short stories. One is by Leo Tolstoy. So the Russians are like super poetic, very sad people. Um, but uh, but they got they they got some really good stuff. So this one uh, short story called The Death of Ivan Ilyich, um, I L L Y C H, I think. Uh, and that was like I was a. I failed some courses in college, so I had to take a short story class in the summer. It was the best story I ever took. Class I ever took. Maybe I need to take more. Um, so yeah, I uh, I read so many short stories that summer, and short stories have this ability to condense meaning into you know 30 to 40 pages and just like soak it in. That's where I really kind of learned how to read well. I don't know if, that, if you know what I mean by that, but just like really learn how to ingest literature. Um, so that's one. And then finally was a story by um, McDonald, is his last name. But who's the Scottish author? author? What's that? George McDonald. I was going to say Norm McDonald, but he's just the very unfunny dude from Saturday Night Live. Um, very sad man, too. Uh, but George MacDonald, um, he was a Scottish author, just an awesome, incredible mind. He wrote a short story called The Light Princess. Whatever, go read it. Uh, <laughs> we had a short story club when I was in seminary, um, which is as nerdy as it sounds. We would just kind of hang out in this guy's room and read the stuff we wanted to read. Uh, but we had to read it out loud, and you had to use the voices of the characters as you heard them in your head which is really embarrassing, but we did it. Uh, so yeah, those three short stories are really good. That's my, that's my jam. Um, anything else? So uh, similar to the short stories, my recommendation is actually a book of uh, essays. Uh, it's by a man named uh, Larry Brown, who is a firefighter in Mississippi. Uh, the book is called On Fire, and they are, uh, you know, I don't know. I was looking back through my notes, because I read it on my phone, and I don't think he ever actually explicitly talks about religion, but I thought um, you know, the, the prose that he's writing is so um, moving and simple in its, in its own way. Uh, it really helped me uh, in my own writing, and I think it's a good shot, you know, a good snapshot of heroism and, you know, the corporal acts of mercy and these things in a, in a situation that's not warfare or the Holocaust, you know, these are the somebody's daily commute, and, you know, now they're in these situations. So I thought it was a pretty uh, powerful book. Awesome. All right. Am I, are we going to call it there? Can you, can you, can you toast us out? Can oh, yeah, that? I think so. This is the toast. Can you read it in an Irish accent for us? Oh, wow, yeah. Can I have my beer over Since here? you're good at uh, accents, now that I know that, from your short story experience. A, a female Irish accent. Yeah, a female oh. Irish accent. This is... This is a farewell says this is a poem attributed to St. Bridget of Ireland. I thought we would stay in the poetry. You may have heard it before. Uh, but anyways, I think it's great for theology on top. I pledge allegiance to <laughs> I'm gonna read it in my own voice because that's that's what I feel like doing right now. Uh, <laughs> so raise your glasses. I should like a great lake of beer for the King of Kings. I should like the angels of heaven to be drinking it through time eternal. I should like excellent meats of belief and pure piety. I should like the men of heaven at my house. I should like barrels of peace at their disposal. I should like them for them sellers of mercy. I should like cheerfulness to be their drinking. 
I should like Jesus to be there among them. I should like the three Marys of illustrious renown to be with us. I should like the people of heaven, the poor, to be gathered around from all parts. Slainty! <laughs> Come on, Slainty! <laughs> Alright, so, uh, did that go how you wanted it? Alright. Alright, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that talk, and we will see you next week with Chapter 3 of Man Alive on Pints with Chesterton. Cheers. Cheers.